Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Southeast Asia Dispatches brought to you by New Narrative. I'm your host, PJ Tham. Southeast Asia Dispatches is a fortnightly podcast series bringing you news, interviews and commentary from around Southeast Asia. In this episode, we speak to LGBT rights activists working to establish an advocacy network in Laos. We examine a peace park set up by the Karen ethnic group in conflict-embroiled Myanmar. We hear from a trans woman who left her home country of Malaysia to seek asylum in the UK. And one of our editors talks about her experience covering the December 2018 tsunami which hit parts of Java and Sumatra in Indonesia. In Laos, the rights of the lesbian, gay, bisexual and transgender community or LGBT community remain virtually non-existent, with LGBT issues widely considered a Western import. However, Anan Buapa, founder of Laos' first and only LGBT rights group, is working to change this. His group, Proud to be Us Laos, has been attempting to break the social-cultural taboos surrounding LGBT rights in the country. But in this communist state, where both activism and LGBT rights are viewed with extreme skepticism, the group is not even recognised by the Laotian government. Adam Bema speaks with Annan about his attempts to create a national LGBT rights movement from the ground up. In a cafe near the Mekong River, in Laos's capital, Vientiane, Annan Buapa sits in front of his laptop with a Japanese green tea by his side. 31-year-old Anan is the founder of Proud to be Us Laos, the country's only organization advocating for the rights of gay, bisexual, and transgendered youth. But Laos doesn't recognize LGBT people and views all attempts at advocacy on their behalf as a foreign or Western import. As such, the group is not registered with the communist government, nor is it allowed to use the language of universal human rights. Number one priority is to have the trust from your community uh, more than anyone else. You know, if, if, if your community uh, doesn't accept you, that if they don't accept you, they don't have a faith in your work, it's going to be very difficult. And I'm very lucky that I, I get their trust and, their, and they see the importance of, of our work, of Proud to be Us Laos work in general. Proud to be us Laos members gather regularly at a small office in the east end of Vientiane. The team of six just returned from a trip to Vietnam, where they studied the relationship between Vietnam's Ministry of Justice and local LGBT groups. In recent years, Vietnamese LGBT activists have begun working with the government on human rights awareness. Annan hopes to one day work with government agencies in Laos crafting its policy in assisting the LGBT community. We are different, so we have to, to educate and explain this to our elderly, to, to our parents, to our government, because they, they are not, uh, in their generation, it's not something to talk about. It's not an easy uh, path to, to, uh, to come to this point, uh, given the fact that um, you know, it's very new, of course, being LGBT is not new. <laughs> it's in our parents, who know, in our grandparents' generation. Uh, I'm sure they they were there, but it's just not. Um, they had to be someone else, right, in order to blend in into the society. To talk about that or inject that into the 
political advocacy is 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 something very uh, challenging because it requires a lot of explanation. Viengakon Suryo is director of Laos Positive Health Association, or Laupa. It provides health services to the LGBT community. Viengakon met Anand several years ago when he was a young health educator working with LGBT people on the streets of Vientiane. Uh, Anand is doing very well jobs, so he promotes a lot of the, um, the advocacy about LGBT people in the, in the national and globally. For example, we are trying to bring the people to use the excellent service that the government is providing. But Anand is trying, he tries to advocate uh, to ensure that, is that they have the policy protection of the LGBT group in Laos. But I think it's the, this is the very initiative and very beginning in Laos. So the people still, still not, uh, not many people understand about the LGBT issue, about the global context. The members of Proud to be as Laos, all of whom are volunteers, know they are in this for the long run. They are committed to taking their educational campaigns not just to the public, but also to Laotian authorities. Let's work together and then explain to, to our government together how can we help them because they are, at least Ministry of Health is very active uh, working with these people. So why don't we just work with them and then make a change because it's, it's reality. It's not somebody asked us to be like this. Uh, so we have to prove them that we can do something for the country. Viengakon is concerned about the lack of legal status for Proud to be us Laos. But he believes that Anand will be able to gain official recognition soon. I see the Facebook, they are working closely with the uh, Lao Women Unions, the Lao Youth Unions, and also working with the other development partners um, to support the um, young people, particularly LGBT young people. That's, uh, that's, that's, great, that's a great job, so we, we, we always support that. They cannot do many things, particularly reaching high-risk people. This is not uh, the job. This is our job, to reach the people. This is, this is the take time, take time. Proud to be at this is the, the I think this is the, the going very fast. <laughs> They're going very fast. I think this is because they have a very good team to do the job. Proud to be us Laos is looking at new ways of creating awareness about LGBT rights issues. The group's main focus is on eliminating LGBT stigma and discrimination through education. In the future, we plan to publish some infographics about uh, sexual orientation and gender identity. We decided to, to launch this program, so we, we, we want to educate um, general public. We expect the negative outcome because we, we, we hear that, no, we don't have that. But we, we use that um, result as a starting point. To, to work uh, to bring LGBT issues into um, and uh, you know the subject of employment, like fair employment in the Lapida for the first time. David Young is with UNESCO Asia Pacific's Thailand office. He sees Anand's human rights work as the founding of a movement. LGBTI activism is like a really I would say a new issue in Laos compared to like Vietnam and Thailand. And even some of the UN agencies aren't quite sure what they're doing with LGBTI rights in Laos. You know, they're out, they're doing parades, they're um, engaging people, they're engaging the community. I mean, they still have a ways to go, but I think making very good progress in the time that they've existed. Back at the meeting, 
Anand jokes with other members. Thinking back to the early days of the group, he mentions how Proud to be Us Laos came up with its name. We ask, uh, what should the name be? Also, name is very important <laughs> in, in Laos. Usually, uh, people want a name that's an acronym, right? Yeah, <laughs> because we, be yeah, exactly. Because when you when you translate it into local language, it can mean something. Right. You know, yeah, when you say in English, maybe it sounds nice, but translate it might be offensive to, to to someone. You know. At the end, we, we agree to put uh, proud to be us Laos. In Laos, it's Pum Jai Thi Pen Hao. So it's like proud to be yourself, something like that. So we want to um, enable positive environment for uh, people from, you know, come from all walks of life, especially people who have different uh, sexual orientation and gender identity. We want to introduce um, what is LGBT. In Laos. That report was brought to you by Adam Bema in Vientiane. Myanmar has what some have called one of the longest running civil wars in the world, with numerous ethnic groups fighting for independence from the national government. But out of the conflict has emerged a radical grassroots initiative. It is working to preserve an ethnic community's biocultural diversity, provide protection from war, and prevent unwanted development projects, things that many say the union-level government has yet to do. In Kayan State, Victoria Milko takes us to the opening of the Salween Peace Park. Along a river and tucked between the mountains in eastern Myanmar, Hundreds of villagers have gathered to witness the establishment of Myanmar's first peace park. Throughout the park, children play in the river and run through tall beds of flowers, while mothers weave in their home. Many of the men come and go from their vast farm fields. But beyond the flora and fauna, the park is, for many in Myanmar, a beacon of hope. To understand the significance of the park's establishment, it's important to first understand what peace parks are and how they began. So the Peace Park thing is curious because the kind of Peace Park idea emerged after the First World War, and it actually originated in Watershed Lakes and Glacier National Parks in Canada, the United States. And that was U.S. and Canada saying, let's be a model to the world, like this crazy Europe over there that doesn't seem to be able to get along. Hey, look, these are two countries that share this long border, and we can get along, and we have this park, and it symbolizes all that. So it was really that kind of nation-to-nation symbolism. And since then, that model has come up elsewhere in post-conflict situation. That's Dr. Robin Roth, an associate professor of geography at University of Guelph in Ontario, who carried out her PhD work among the ethnic Karen communities. Dr. Roth explains that a peace park is just a nice name for a transboundary conservation area, an ecological protected space which spans across the territory of more than one country. This one's different in that it's inside of a country that internationally is recognized as a sovereign country. But as we know, the Burmese sovereignty hasn't stretched to the border. And so here we have a subnational state, like Karen date, saying, you know what, this is the kind of peace that we want. So it is a little bit different than other peace parks, I would say. But it's quite similar to indigenous protected areas elsewhere in, in the world. The Karen, an ethnic minority who live primarily in the eastern part of modern-day Myanmar, have been fighting for an independent state for more than 70 years. The region is governed mostly by the Karen National Union, known as the KNU, a body with a democratically elected political leadership. 
The KNU has provided services such as health care and education for the Karen, while also maintaining an armed wing called the Karen National Liberation Army, or the KNLA, which has been fighting with the Burmese military since 1949. The Civil War has resulted in the displacement of thousands, as well as the deforestation and the destruction of other natural resources such as riverways. Other threats, such as illegal logging and dam sites proposed by the Burmese government, also pose a risk to the region. This is a huge problem for the Karen, who see nature as an integral part of their traditions, culture, and daily life. But this Solomon Peace Park ideology is very much different because we all are interconnected and we all live together in the forest, especially the indigenous Korean communities. I'm sure there are other communities, I mean like indigenous communities, they, they are life, every day their life very much depend on, on land and forest and water and rivers. So you cannot really separate that. You cannot really separate the, the connection between the people and nature. That's Saw Alex too, the deputy director of the Karen Environmental and Social Action Network, known as KSAN. Alex, too, says that after decades of fighting, even after the official government ceasefire of 2015, and consistent encroachment of Karen land with development projects such as dams and logging, the Karen people sought alternatives. They ultimately landed on the idea of a peace park. The logic behind the project was simple, says Alex, too. So why don't we create a peaceful environment where everybody can live in peace and support each other, help each other, that we can create a, a future, uh, a better future for our next generation. I think that's very important. The idea that if we do not include all, everything, the nature, the human, all living things in the in area where we live, then we are creating problems in, in our surrounding. And uh, that, that is very uh, problematic because we are now living in a world that we have greedies, and, and we have people want to make a profit out of others. You know, this is the world that we're living. Why don't we create a peaceful environment where we can all live in peace, we can all help each other, we can all uh, support each other so that you know, our next generation can also become something that better for everybody. A draft charter for the park was created soon after the idea was adopted wanting the park to have legitimacy as a people-centered, grassroots alternative from the standard top-down systems commonly used across Southeast Asia, the park's organizers decided that signatures of consent from the park's draft charter would be needed from 75% of the voting age population in the park's area. After months of outreach, organizers were able to get the signatures needed, and on December 18, 2018, the charter was signed, officially establishing the Salween Peace Park. The park is now home to more than 70,000 people inhabiting 340 villages. This marks a major moment in the conservation of indigenous lands in Myanmar, with local systems of governance stepping in where many Karens say the union-level government has failed. The process in which the park is being established, Dr. Roth says, is also critical to its success. You know, the Salween Peace Park, one of the things they've done really well here, that I, and they've documented really well, and so I expect it'll be quite helpful for other groups in the region that might look to do the same thing, is their process of designation. So it was very ground up, very much community consultations, and in difficult circumstances too, right? So they did, I think, the best they, they could by talking to everyone in the district, by holding dialogues and workshops and discussions, developing a charter collaboratively, going through a referendum for that charter, developing a governance structure that is representative of the people in the region. And in doing that and document it quite thoroughly, I think what the, the, the amount of buy-in that they've got is really promising. Um, and I think that that model, if it's followed in other places within South Southeast Asia, I think could work quite well for other groups. This is just the beginning. 
Starting this year, there will be an annual Salween Peace Park Congress, where members of the park can express their views and share information. Governing committees, working groups, and task force will be established to deal with important jobs, such as peacebuilding, conflict resolution, internally displaced person rehabilitation, natural resource management, and much more. The Peace Park is very important, not just for conserving the environment and maintaining the culture, but politically it is very important because we could say that this is one of the last remaining territories where we should control and protect from encroachers. This is a symbol that we can do things by our own. We can manage our land, we can control our territories. The leaders of the park are now taking steps to receive international recognition, including as an indigenous community reserved area, thus giving it a greater chance of being listed as a world database protected area. These are steps that, if successful, Dr. Roth says, could be emulated by other groups in the region. But if this one's up and running and people have the capacity to monitor wildlife, to do the research necessary, to enforce rules and regulations, and to have everyone on board, then it's going to be hard to deny that as a viable model. And so it's important, I think, to get kind of, for the region, it's important to get this one up and running and see what that looks like. And if it's possible here, I, I mean, I hesitate to say, but it should be possible everywhere, right? That was brought to you by Victoria Milko in Yangon. In 2010, Fatin Yang became the first known Malaysian transgender woman to be granted asylum in the United Kingdom. She had been supported by media coverage and a civil partnership with a British citizen. Alana Issa had none of that. When the UK granted her asylum, it was solely on the grounds of the persecution that trans people face in Malaysia. Idila Razak sits down Valana in London to talk about her experience in Malaysia and the process of seeking asylum. Let's start from the beginning. Yeah. Just tell me where you're from, your family. Okay, um, well, I'm from Penang, Malaysia, and we live in a very rural area in Balikpula. Everyone is so very close-knit. My family is quite conservational, very religious. If you are a child and if you are not obeying your parents' instruction to pray, after the age of 10, they can beat you up. So we got cane, we got yeah. belted, uh, coat hangers. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's it. quite normal in Malaysia, culturally, where parents are beating up their children because they don't follow orders or they don't follow the religious, uh, like fasting or praying or doing like mixing up with girls and all that. Mixing up with girls? With yeah, I mean, in my village, I can't be seen with girls because my mom will, will really, really is opposed to that. Like, you can't be playing with girls, you can't be hanging out with girls, just go out with boys. Uh, I think that's because my mom knows that I'm quite feminine, so she doesn't want to encourage it. But then I don't really follow because I, ha I like being with my girls. When I went to high school, when I was 13, is when I started to explore my gender expression, when I became more feminine, when I meet more other people like me, and then words got around to my sisters and my brothers, and my brothers at home call me names, calling me pondan, which is faggot in English, mm. and my sisters also trying to advise me against it. Uh, by saying, like, you can't do this, you can't do that, it's not okay, my friends are talking about you. How did your parents uh, react to the um, situation? The 
effort that they put into trying to change me is continuous, regardless of how flamboyant I was when I was growing up. So it's just futile, but they kept doing it, which can be really uh, tiresome over the time. So I got sick of it. How did the idea of seeking asylum came to be? So I did my computer science degree in University of Kent in Canterbury. Uh, I had a boyfriend and then in the end of my studies, I was about to go home and he mentioned about claiming asylum. At the time, I have no idea what that is. And I know that claiming asylum will result for you being a refugee. And at the time, I have a very negative preconception of what a refugee meant. Because in Malaysia, refugees are treated badly. So I just went home right away. Then in Malaysia, I was involved with some NGOs called Pelangi. Um, so we had an event called the Big Gaytar. And then it went really... It backfired on us and our funder has to leave the country. At the time, I was already transitioning. Apart from the backlashes that the organization received with me being a part of it as well, I was also thinking about my future as a, as a transgender woman. What was the picture in your mind when you thought about the future in Malaysia? Oh my gosh, dark, very dark. I don't think there's a future because I know there are going to be groups and groups of people who are going to fight against us. I imagine lots of people in Malaysia also think that refugee would be someone kind of fleeing for their lives. Yeah. Would you say you well, are in the same position? Um, being a refu- refugee, it's not only you're fleeing war, you're fleeing for your health from people who are having bad intentions towards you. You're facing discrimination where you can't live your life fully. I will feel very claustrophobic living in Malaysia because whatever way I do, like when I step out of the house, even I know that people will look at me in a certain way. I don't feel safe. I don't like people looking at me when I was trying to be myself. I have also faced discrimination. I had also faced verbal abuse. And you know, those things can affect people's mental health, especially when it happens again and again and again. What were the challenges that you faced in putting together your asylum application? Well, I think my case was quite straightforward. Because I prepare it really well, document all the articles that happened in Malaysia in 2017, where where I came from in Penang, there was this murder of a young gay boy, 18 years old. And those happened that year before I claimed asylum. It really scares me if somebody like you, who you were used to be, a gay boy, very effeminate, he was attacked and bullied and he's not safe around his where he lives. And also there was this murder of trans woman Samira. I know there are so many other cases who are undocumented. Could you tell me about the day you learned that you were granted asylum? Oh my gosh. I was actually at my friend's court hearing and I received phone calls from my caseworker three times. She never do that. <laughs> And then when I got out of the court with my three friends and I called her back and she told me I was screaming and I told them that all three of us were screaming outside the court. (laughs) I was so happy. Like, I am literally being granted a new lease of life and I don't feel that suppression anymore. Like, so many doors have opened to me. I can finally live my life as the way that I wanted. What's life like as a refugee? It's... It's taking a time for me to get used to it. Some of my friends who were a refugee here don't tell people they were a refugee because they feel like people here also have a negative perception. But 
I try to be vocal about it. I try not to be ashamed of it because I want to raise awareness. I want to tell people the story of what it's like. And hopefully that my stories will get to somebody that can relate to it and then they can do it. It has been a lot of hurdles as well. Getting employment, getting training, getting access to private renting with private landlords. It hasn't been easy, obviously. Yeah. There's difficulties that you face navigating this new chapter of your life. Is it still better than being in Malaysia? Um, yes, 100%. People here is, is there to support you, regardless of your gender identity, who you are, where you came from, which is really good. Compared to Malaysia, it's not even close. Oh, can I ask you about your family? How has the reception been since you've been um, status? I don't really know, actually. I just told them that I've been granted, so I'll be staying here for five years at least. I do feel the responsibility to tell them what's happening, especially to my mom. Well, I have to tell her that I was transitioning. She said that don't ever come back if I want to come back as a woman. A part of me was shattered, but a part of me was relieved because I felt like the like a burden has been lifted off me. She knows that what I am in the future, maybe she knows what to expect if I ever come back. She did message me for my birthday last month. Sometimes the random messages that she sent about religious things. <sighs> I hope you were praying, you were focusing on the path. She ignores the fact that I'm trans woman. I don't show her my pictures and I don't want to show her my pictures to hurt her. So I have a chosen family here in the UK. I was lucky enough to be being taken under their wings by, from this Malaysian community here in London who are more understanding. I feel also deeply rooted in my identity as a Malay person. So having those people as a connection, as a reminder to that, this is just really heartwarming. I also feel like I'm somehow still connected to my Muslim identity because I was raised that way. And I still is quite optimistic in the religion and I feel like there is a place for me. It's just that in Malaysia, people are too extremist. I'm taking my time to try to find where I sit or where the religion sits in my life. What's next for you? For now, for me, I want to really to get a job, finish my postgraduate degree. Yeah, trying to take one thing at a time because you've been through a lot. That was Idila Razak speaking of Alana Isa in London. In early 2019, the Indonesian government pledged to double its disaster relief fund following several natural disasters that hit the country. The latest of these tragedies was a powerful tsunami that struck the islands of Java and Sumatra on 22nd December 2018. It killed over 430 people and injured thousands more. Our deputy editor for Bahasa Indonesia, Aisha Llewellyn, travelled to one of the worst affected areas in South Sumatra, and reflects on how mass organizations often fill the gaps left by the government following a natural disaster in Indonesia. On the hillside of Rajabasa Mountain, a towering peak in Lampung, South Sumatra, a group of displaced villagers showed me around their makeshift camp. They'd been forced to flee their homes overnight and were now sleeping in tents made from tarpaulins and mosquito nets getting by on instant noodles and food foraged from the jungle. They had almost nothing, but at least here they were safe. Days before, the Anak Krakatau volcano had erupted, triggering what experts suspect was an underwater landslide. 
This, in turn, caused a tsunami, which barreled across the Sunda Strait and smashed into the coastline of the islands of Sumatra and Java. The village's camp was over a kilometre trek up the mountain, along jungle roads which could only be reached by car, then motorbike, and finally on foot. It had been raining heavily for days, and the ground had turned to mud. As we talked, they made a fire with wood from the forest and boiled green bananas in a pot. We ate them together. To say that it was a humbling experience would be an understatement. On Christmas Eve 2018, I travelled to Lampung to report on the tsunami from the ground. At the time, the death toll was around 200. In the end, the waves killed over 430 people and displaced more than 30,000. Of those 30,000, around 100 local residents, many of them women and children, had taken up residence at the camp on Rajabasa mountain in a partial clearing known as Kampong Namos. When I visited them on Boxing Day 2018, it had been four days since the tsunami hit and they were still waiting to receive aid from local government agencies. All they had were donations from surrounding communities. It was also 14 years to the day when a tsunami decimated much of Aceh province in Indonesia. Indonesia is a country built on the collective. From a young age, Indonesians are encouraged to join groups and clubs. These organizations are known as ORMAS, which stands for Organisasi Kemasyarakatan, or Community Organizations. If you look up the definition of ORMAS, they're known as voluntary organizations established and formed by a local community based on shared aspirations, wishes, needs, interests, activities, and objectives to participate in the development of the unitary state of the Republic of Indonesia. Other groups can be based around jobs, hobbies, sports, religious beliefs, or even geographical locations. Often these groups, particularly the more zealous religious ones, get a lot of flack for mobilizing in negative ways. Just think back to high-profile blasphemy cases in Indonesia, where these groups have lobbied for individuals to be arrested and organized mass marches or demonstrations for problematic causes. At their worst, when looked at through a guilt-presumptive lens, these groups are akin to a baying mob exacting their own kind of mass street justice. But they're usually one step ahead of the government in a crisis. Free of red tape, they can mobilize quickly and easily, often getting aid to remote areas before other groups who have their internal bureaucracy, such as risk assessment procedures, are able to do so. These groups usually know the local area well and have organized logistics in place to respond faster than other aid organizations. As I saw in the mountains around Lampung, this aid can be a lifeline. It can literally save people's lives in a crisis when they're hungry, thirsty, cold, and sick. In other countries, such as the United Kingdom, joining a group is often viewed negatively 
if it comes at the expense of individual thought. In Indonesia, these kinds of collectives can be all you've got when you can't rely on the government, either local or central, to help you. The lack of aid is something the government is trying to rectify. Having recently announced plans to increase its disaster response budget in 2019 to 1.06 billion US dollars. It sounds like a lot, but Indonesia was hit by 2,564 disasters in 2018, including tsunamis, earthquakes, floods, forest fires, and landslides. These tragedies killed thousands and displaced more than 10 million others. Even now, questions remain about whether there's enough money to go around and whether it will get to the right areas when disaster strikes. Whether the new budget will make a difference or not, it seems that local organizations will continue to plug the gaps for a long time to come. Collective response to trauma is deeply ingrained in the national consciousness. On the coastal road in Lampung that tacked along the seafront to the worst affected areas, there was a convoy of cars making the trip every day with banners or signs attached to them. The Midwives Association of South Lampung Care, some read. The South Sumatra Football Club is here to help said others. Each car or truck was piled high with aid, like food and medical supplies. At the camp on Rajabasa Mountain, I met a group who'd come from a local mosque in the provincial capital of Lampung over an hour away, bringing with them food, blankets and mosquito nets. As soon as news of the tsunami broke, the mosque had solicited donations and packed eight cars to the brim before traveling to the coast and up to the muddy camps. We're here in solidarity with our brothers and sisters, they told me. We'll bring them whatever they need. That was brought to you by Aisha Llewellyn in Medan. And that's it for this episode. We'd like to thank our contributors, Adam Bemmer, Victoria Milko, Alana Isa, Idila Razak and Aisha Llewellyn for making this episode possible. Be sure to tune in to New Narrative's Political Agenda next week, our fortnightly podcast on current affairs in Singapore. And check out our website at newnarrative.com for more stories from Southeast Asia. If you enjoy what we're doing, please do support our work by subscribing to New Narrative at newnarrative.com slash join. Subscriptions start at just 52 US dollars a year. That's just one US dollar a week. This is PJ Thumb wishing all our listeners a great week ahead. Sampai jumpa.